Hi everybody at MAFRA. Um, good to be with you again, albeit by video. I'll be there in person next week, God willing. So, um, but uh, I'll look forward to that. And of course, we're continuing our series in Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And today we're up to uh, some of the most important words that were ever committed to parchment or paper. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. So let's pray that God helps us as we come to his word today. Uh, loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the treasure of your word. We thank you for the riches of your grace, which you've lavished upon us. We thank you for your servant, the Apostle Paul, who wrote these words down uh, under the inspiration of your spirit. And so we pray that you would help us by your spirit today to take hold of these things, to believe them and uh, to live in the light of them. We ask that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I hope you've read Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, and uh, it'd be great if you could keep uh, the passage open in front of you. Uh, G. Campbell Morgan was a great preacher of a previous time, an English man, and he, uh, he was a, a fairly prolific author as well, and one of his books was called The Great Chapters of the Bible. And in the foreword to the book, he explained um, that the title of this book may seem to suggest a comparison between the chapters uh, and other chapters of the Bible. So he had about 47 chapters. I've forgotten how many chapters there are in the Bible. It's, it's a lot of chapters, but he had 47 that were chosen. And he said he, he didn't intend any comparison of one with another. He says every chapter of the sacred writings has its own greatness. Nevertheless, there are chapters or sections which stand out in the appeal that they make to the human heart. The greatness of such passages is created by human need rather than by their inherent quality. So all scripture is inspired by God, every, every one of the chapters, and yet there are some of those chapters that just stand out as, as beacons, pinnacles of, of Bible truth because of the role that they have in condensing important things that, that are just so vital for people to know, to realise. And Ephesians 2 verses 1 to 10 is one of those sections. So John Calvin, uh, the great French reformer, uh, he, he wrote, commentaries on most of the books of the Bible and a famous one on the book of Ephesians and he says in the second chapter of Ephesians Paul focuses on the riches of God's grace he reminds the Ephesians of how badly off they were before they were called to Christ and he goes on and he says we never become properly conscious of how much we owe to Christ until we've been reminded of how awful our condition was when we were still outside him and so chapter 2 reminds us it reminded the original readers, the, the Christians in Asia Minor, uh, around the city of Ephesus, and it reminds us who read it all these years later, that our situation without Christ was wretched, impossible, hopeless, and yet we've been rescued, wonderfully rescued. So Ephesians, uh, Paul has started off by uh, talking about the blessings that people have when they come to saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's gone on and he's prayed for the Ephesian Christians. And the prayer that he prayed that Ray looked at last time was uh, in, in chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. He prays that they'll know the hope to which they've been called, that they'll have some sense of the riches of God's glorious inheritance, which is his people, his saints. And he wants them to know the great power that is at work in them and he says, the power that's at work in you, helping you to live this new life, is the same power that God used to raise Jesus from the dead. 
And so that power is now at work, not just in individual Christians, but also in the church. Have a look around. Have a look at the people that you are sharing the room with. These are people in whom God's power is working, not just as individuals, but as the church in Mafra. The church in Mafra is empowered by God and his Holy Spirit. This power that's at work in us is shown now in chapter 2, verses 1 to 10, to be the source of our new life. It's transferred us from being dead to being alive. So this is a, a precious chapter because in it we find in very few words the, the foundation of the great hope that we have which is based on the fact that we're saved by grace through faith and saved not by the things we do but so that we can new, live a new life full of good works that God has prepared. Now these are familiar words. If you've been a Christian any length of time at all, you'll have heard these sorts of things many times. Uh, Ephesians 2 is a famous chapter and it's so famous that sometimes when we hear about grace and faith and salvation, we go, yeah, I've heard all that before. Have you ever heard the saying, familiarity breeds contempt? You're so familiar with something, you think, oh, I can, you know, I, I could, isn't it time to learn something new? Um, do you know Frederick McCubbin's painting, The Pioneers? Uh, Frederick McCubbin was one of the great late 19th century Australian artists and he painted this large painting that hangs on the, uh, the wall of the National Gallery in Melbourne. Uh, it's, it's painted in three sections and it shows the progress of a pioneering family, a woman looking lonely and wistful while her husband's in the background. And then uh, the second uh, part of the, of the three paintings uh, shows he, he, uh, her with a baby in her arms and, and, and uh, the man with a, a cottage built in the background. And then uh, the last of the three panels has uh, a man looking at a gravestone. And it's a tribute to the pioneering spirit of, of Australian early settlers. Uh, it's a painting which has been reproduced on T-shirts, on tea towels, on calendars, on coffee mugs, on placemats. You can, you can buy cheap versions of it to put up in your holiday house if you want. It's a painting which has become really, really familiar. And yet... When you see it in the original, when you go and look at how large it is, you're reminded again just how special it is. Ephesians 2 is one of these passages that we may think that we know because we've heard about these things so often. But when we look at it closely, we realise there's riches, there's, pre there's treasure here that we really need to, to think very hard about. As I was looking at it in this past week, it struck me that really... It's an easy passage to understand. There's nothing very complicated about it. It, it, it reads, and, and, and if you read it slowly and meditatively, prayerfully, it'll give up its meaning quite readily. It's not a difficult passage to understand, but it's a difficult passage to accept because it says things about us as people that we may not necessarily, by nature, want to hear at all. So it's a very challenging passage. And the question is, will we accept its challenge? Will we accept Ephesians 2, 1 to 10 and its verdict on humanity and its representation of the character of God? So have a look at the passage, verses 1 to 3. There's three sections, I think. Uh, verses 1 to 3 tell us our great need. G. Campbell Morgan said that this is a great chapter because it, it, it powerfully meets a human need. Well, the great need is, is spelled out. Um, and it shows what Christians used to be. Uh, all Christians everywhere have this in common. 
they were once dead in their transgressions and sins. So we can say that the great need is because people were once dead men walking, dead people walking. So he starts off, verse 1, you were dead in the, in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's really not a very flattering picture of humanity at all. Now, the idea of dead man walking comes from a film. It was made in 1995. It's one of the many films I've never seen. But evidently, it details the last period of life of, of a man who was sentenced to death for brutal crimes, and he was on death row. And he was befriended by a kindly nun who became his spiritual counsellor. Dead man walking. The sentence has been passed. The date of his execution is inevitable. The film shows the passage of time up to there. While he's alive, he's as good as dead. Paul says, you were dead in trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Now, walk here is it's, it's a, a word, it's a concept that's used throughout the Bible. It means your manner of life. It means the way that you go about things. We might say our lifestyle. Our lifestyle was characterised by deadness. This is to show just how hopeless the human condition is outside of God's saving initiative through the Lord Jesus Christ. This deadness is expressed in a life that's characterised by trespasses. Trespass means to step out of the right way. It means to take false steps. Trespasses are deliberate contraventions of the godly way of life that we were created to live. But not only trespasses, Paul says you were dead in trespasses and sins. Now the word sin here quite literally means to fall short. It means to miss the target. It was a word which in the original world of the Bible was used at an archery contest. If a, an archer was taking a shot at a target and they missed or if the arrow fell short, the word hamasha was used. That's the word that Paul uses for sin here. It literally means to, to miss the target or to fall short. And of course, in Romans 3, Paul points out that all of us, everybody everywhere, falls short of the glory of God. So because of our deliberate decision to disobey our transgressions, because by nature we fall short of God in his perfection, our status is we're as good as dead. Now, sin is a condition that we're born with. Uh, sin is a condition that causes us to become sinners. It's not something that, that adds itself to us after we're born. We're born with this inevitable tendency. It's like if you play lawn bowls, and I think there's someone there that does. Um, when you toss a lawn bowl onto the green, it will go in the direction of the bias. There's this weighted side of the bowling ball and it will inevitably take the ball in its, in its favour. Every one of us has been born with a bias, a tendency to want to go our own, own way rather than going on the straight line of God's way. We transgress, we deviate from the path. We have a bias, a tendency to sin. Now, verse 2 says that... Um, 
that we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which you once walked. What we were doing, following the course of this world. Now, J.B. Phillips, in his wonderful translation of the New Testament, he says, you drifted along on the stream of this world's idea. So we're just following, just going, following the crowd. I remember years ago, 1977 it was, it was my first year at university, and Queen Elizabeth and Prince Philip had come to Australia and they were doing a parade up Swanson Street. So I took a little bit of time away from uni and went down to see the action. There was this massive crowd out in front of the Melbourne Town Hall and it was a bright sunny day and the Queen and her motorcade went by and, and we all waved and she waved back. And, uh, and then people started to move and I didn't want to move with them. I didn't, I had to get back to uni and I didn't want to follow the crowd and I was stuck and, and, and I, I was starting to feel very claustrophobic. And so I tried to move my way through to, to get up to where it felt a bit safer, right up against the town hall. Uh, it, was a, it was a moderately worrying time actually. But that's how we live. We, we tend to follow the crowd. It's hard to go against this great tide. And when lots of other people, you know, the old saying, oh, everybody else is doing it. Uh, that's what Paul's got in mind here. You drifted along on the stream of this world's idea, says, uh, says J.B. Phillips. William Barclay in his translation says that this is living life in the way that this present, of the, present age of this world lives it living life as the ruler of the power of the air dictates it. So Paul says that we're not just following the world, we're actually following the world's ruler, the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that's now at work in the sons of disobedience. Ephesus was a spiritual centre. It was a spiritual centre devoted to the worship of the goddess Artemis. She was the goddess of the hunt, but she was also a fertility goddess. So there was a lot of sexual stuff going on with the worship of, uh, of Artemis. If you read Acts chapter 19, you'll realise that Paul's preaching of the gospel got him into trouble with the people that made the statues of Artemis because it was doing them out of business. Now, Artemis was worshipped in a massive temple. The temple was uh, considered to be one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And the man that came up with the list of the seven wonders said, I've seen them all and Artemis's temple is the best of them. It's, it's number one of the seven. But it was a massive great temple. It was 137 metres long. It was 69 metres wide. It was 18 metres high, that's six storeys tall. And this is in the ancient world, it was an impressive building. And just to give you a bit of a perspective, uh, the temple would only just fit into the MCG if you put it across through the centre. The MCG is 146 metres wide. Uh, the Artemis temple was 137 metres long. It would only just fit in. So that's how big it was and six storeys tall, a massive great thing. Artemis' temple was a symbol of all that Ephesus was. It was a wealthy town. It was given over to the worship of this particular um, idol, God. Uh, and that was the context in which the gospel first took root. But Paul says your old way of life, your old following of the way of the world is actually following the way of the prince of this present age. That's another way of saying the evil one or Satan He's given a number of titles throughout the Bible, and, and he is one of them. Jesus himself called him the ruler of this world in John chapter 12 and 14 and chapter 16. Paul in 2 Corinthians talks about him as being the God of this world. Uh, Satan is the, the hidden force behind a world whose course is going away from God. And even though 
we, we're not going to say that everybody who's not a Christian is demon-possessed. The Bible does not teach that, and it's a, it's a false conclusion to reach. But like it or not, if people are not putting their trust in the Lord Jesus, according to 2 Corinthians 4, their minds have been blinded by the God of this age. And so he's the motive force behind a world without knowing it, which is opposed to God, the true God who's revealed himself through his son. C.S. Lewis said an interesting thing. He said there are two errors that you can make about the evil one, about Satan or the devil. He says you can pay him too much attention, you can obsess about him, and some Christians do that. But the other error is not to pay him sufficient. You can ignore him or pretend he doesn't exist. Most people these days don't believe in a personal devil, but the Bible does. It's a part of, uh, of, of Christian truth. Um, if you're a Bible Christian, you need to believe in, in a personal force of evil known as Satan. He's a person, not just a force, but a, a person who is opposed to all that God stands for. He's not God's opposite because he's created, and so God has no opposite. But he is an opponent. He's the accuser of the brethren. He's, he's, he's the adversary. He, he opposes Christians and all they stand for. But we're promised in the New Testament that we will triumph. He can be resisted if we do it in the strength that God gives. So Paul's prayed that the Ephesians will know the power that raised Jesus from the dead at, at work in their own lives and in the life of the church. And in that power, we can resist the evil one. We don't have to be caught up in that tide of that of humanity that follows him without even knowing it. He's a defeated enemy. His end is sure. It's the lake of fire, according to Revelation 20. But Paul says it's not just the uh, the devil that they're following. It's also the, the desires, uh, human desires. Um, we once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body. So we... That's a life devoted to doing as you please, fulfilling you know just your basic human desires. It's not just sexual desire that's being spoken of here. It's anger and rage and uh, all the things that come from our humanity. This is not a favourable picture of humanity that's being uh, portrayed here. Uh, you know, when people talk about um, things coming from the heart, you know, it's supposed to make it sound like it's a good thing, but in fact, our heart's a dark place. And it needs urgent surgery if it's to be uh, to, to be made new. So Paul, the Apostle of Christ, writing in the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is portraying the prior state of anyone before they come to Christ. In, in dark ways, they're dead in transgressions and sins. A dead person can do nothing for themselves. And so what hope is there for a person who's lost in that way? Well, the only hope is if God intervenes. Now, throughout this passage, whenever you see verbs, all of the verbs that are associated with God's work are active verbs. They're things he does. Any of the verbs that relate to humans about what we've become, they're all passive verbs. They're all things that have been done for us. Dead people can't do anything for themselves. It's only when God chooses and calls and when he ignites the response of faith in a human's heart, that they're able to do anything. And so in verses four to seven, we read the great response of God to the lostness, to the deadness of humans. And so whereas the first few verses have been talking about the, uh, the, the, the state of humanity, now we get God's great response, what you are, what you've become. You've been made alive and you've been saved. 
Look at the word there that starts it off, but God being rich in mercy. So all this, verses 1 to 3, it's all true. It's all terrible, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our, trans our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So God is rich in mercy. That's a reminder of Exodus 34, verse 6, that we've looked at before when we've been thinking about the Psalms. It tells us that God is merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. God is rich in mercy. He's not grudging in mercy. He longs to be merciful to people. Why is he merciful? Because of the great love with which he loved us. How do we know God loved us? We look at the cross. He sent his son to die for us. Now you might think to yourself, well, I'm a pretty lovable sort of person, but not really. According to what we've just read, you are dead in your transgressions and sins. It's because of God's love, not because of anything that's particularly lovable in us. God's love is undeserved. That's what mercy is. Mercy means withholding a penalty that someone does deserve. And this mercy is given to us by grace. Grace is a gift that we don't deserve. Mercy is withholding a penalty that we do deserve. So God doesn't do for us what we, what we deserve. He gives us a gift that we simply don't deserve. And that's the miracle of the new birth. And so all this leads in verse 5 to the fact that we've been made alive. We were dead in our transgressions and sins. Spiritually dead, unable to make contact with God outside of his family, outside of the prospect of eternal life. But in verse 5, because of his great mercy, because of his great love, because he's a God who is endlessly gracious, he's made us alive. Now that's regeneration. It means being given a new heart. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 3 talks to Nicodemus who comes to him and Jesus says, unless a man is born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. He says in verse 8 of John chapter 3 that we need to be born of the Spirit. It talks about a complete inward change. It's something that goes back to the Old Testament in Ezekiel chapter 36, 25 to 27. God says to his, his people that are just going after idols all the time, he looks ahead to a day when they'll be completely transformed. And so in Ezekiel 36, God says to them, I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh and I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Paul knows the Old Testament. He knows that's behind his statement here. He knows that because of what Jesus has done on the cross, paying the debt of our sin, by giving us the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit is the agent of the Godhead that transforms our heart, makes it from stone into, into flesh, makes it a living thing. This is the, the doctrine of regeneration. It's a wonderful thing. God, the master builder, comes in to do a complete renovation of our heart and the Holy Spirit takes hold and transforms our desires, our, our purposes, our actions. He replaces that bias to sin with a, a delight in doing what's right. It doesn't mean that we won't ever sin again because the old sin nature is just part of us and it keeps rearing its head. But we will find that more and more we desire to do what God wants us to do. And so by grace, we've been saved. Uh, God gives us his generous mercy. We've been made alive. 
We've been raised up and seated. In the same way that we were once dead in our transgressions and sins, we've been made alive in, in as much as we were under the power of the evil one. Now we've been seated with the Lord Jesus. So we can say this, once we were dead while we were alive, now we have eternal life even though we're still mortal. Once we were dead while we were alive, we walked in the dead kind of way, but now we have eternal life even while we live in this mortal body. So Christians enjoy a new kind of life even in the here and now. Jesus' death was our death. It was the death that we should have died. He died that horrendous death on the cross. But the miracle is that according to the Apostle Paul here, his resurrection is our resurrection. We've already been raised up. We will one day be fully raised up. Uh, the Lord Jesus might come at any time. We don't know when, but if he doesn't come soon, then we'll die. But when he does return, we who have trusted him will be raised up again. So Christians have been transferred from the rule of the evil one into the new reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. We no longer, because we're now people who possess a new heart, not a heart of stone, but a heart of flesh, the Spirit transforms our desires so we no longer need to be swept along by the current of the world that's following the pattern of life of which Satan approves. God's power that raised Jesus from the dead is now available to us. We can stand firm against the world, against the flesh, and against the devil. And so verses 8 to 10 summarise the whole thing. Here we've got the great result. The great result of a God who, being rich in mercy, can transform dead people into living ones. These are great words. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God. Not a result of works so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. And this is the very heart of Paul's gospel. Just these three verses here, it's the very heart of what we mean when we talk about the gospel. John Calvin again, he said that Paul never tires of proclaiming the riches of God's grace. And so once again, he emphasizes that everything in our salvation must be ascribed to God. No one who understands how deep human ingratitude is will think that this repeti repetition is superfluous. I remember we put out a survey once at one of the churches I was working at asking people what they thought about this and that. And someone commented on the preaching. We've heard the gospel many times. We know the gospel. Tell us what we've got to do now. They were treating the gospel as though it was sort of some entry level thing that we can move on from and grow up and perhaps even leave behind. But the gospel's not entry level. It's how we enter, but it's also how we stay and how we'll be kept until that day when the Lord Jesus returns. The gospel is something we need to constantly be reminded of. And these words need to, to live in our hearts. It's by grace that you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It's the gift of God. So you don't deserve it. There's nothing you can do to earn it. When God saves you, it's not as though he's paying you back for being a good person. You are a dead person. But God, in the fullness of his mercy, in the richness of his love, has chosen you and called you and made it possible for you to respond by faith. Now, what is faith? Well, it means belief. It means trust. It means total dependence. 
Now we can say we believe in something. So I believe in Papua New Guinea. I've never been there, but I believe in it. I believe in Donald Trump, but I've never met him. What does it mean to believe in Jesus? What does it mean to have faith in him? Well, it means more than just knowing about him. It means active, complete trust and dependence. It's a little bit, I think, like a parachute. I've never been parachuting. I believe in it because I've seen it. But to really have faith in a parachute, do you have faith in it when you're standing on the ground? You could strap it on your back and say, I believe in this parachute. No, you really only have demonstrated your trust and your faith in that parachute when you've got it on and when you've stepped outside of the plane and the parachute is the only thing keeping you from the inevitable consequence of the law of gravity. Jesus is the only one who can take a dead person and make them into a live person. To have faith in him says, Jesus, I am completely depending on you to do for me what I could never do on my own. We can contribute nothing to it. We must depend entirely on what he did by being crucified and by being raised. So salvation is not because of anything we've done. It's not as a reward. It's something that is initiated by God and given by God. But the result of it is that with the Holy Spirit dwelling in our hearts, the life of faith will express itself in a lifetime of good works that God's prepared in advance for us to do. So we can say there's this new life which will express itself in a new lifestyle, not of following the world, not of being swept along by the stream that is inspired by the evil one. No, we'll be intent now. Our desires will be transformed to the point where we want to be involved in God's work. Now, the interesting thing here is that throughout this passage, for by grace you have been saved. It's not your own doing. All of these words that relate to the people, they're plural, which means that Paul's speaking here not to individuals but to the church. And so the question here is, how will we as a church live out these good works that God's prepared in advance for us, that we should be active in them, that we should be walking in them? How will we as a church? Yes, it's important to live out the Christian life as individuals, but how will we as a church find those good works that God's prepared beforehand for us to do? That's the ongoing challenge of living for the Lord Jesus in our day, in our generation working with other people who have put their trust in Jesus to see the gospel advance, to see the kingdom built and grow, not here, not just here, but, but everywhere. So Ephesians 2, 1 to 10, we've seen the great need in verses 1 to 3. What we were, we were dead people walking, people without hope and without help until God stepped in. And verses 4 to 7 show us that God responded to our need. He's made us alive he saved us. And then there's the great result. We're given a new identity. We've been raised with Christ. We've been seated with him in heavenly places. We have a new life and a new lifestyle. We've been saved by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus for good works that God has prepared beforehand. Let's together work, walk in them. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, please show us as individuals and as a church, what those good works are that you've prepared in advance for us to do. Uh, please help us to be active in looking for these things in response to your great mercy and your grace. 
Heavenly Father, we thank you again that you've lavished your grace on us, that uh, through your Son, the Lord Jesus, you've paid the price for our sins so that we could know peace with you now and in eternity. We thank you that even now we have this new status of being raised up with Christ. Uh, so help us now to live out the implications of this new life in a, in a transformed lifestyle. Father, if there's anyone listening to this today that doesn't know the Lord Jesus as their Saviour, if there's anyone here today that has not turned from that old dead way of life, Father, I pray that you would open their eyes. I pray that you would enliven their heart and cause them to call out in trust and complete dependence on Jesus, the one who, who, who saves completely by his blood. But Father, for those of us who have put our trust in you, help us never to deviate from it. Help us not to lapse back into our old dead ways. Help us instead for the, the sake of him who loved us and gave himself for us to live lives of, of steadfast obedience uh, as, as individuals and as a church together. Father, we pray all these things uh, in the power of the Holy Spirit for the sake of your Son. Uh, in Jesus' name, Amen. Well, God willing, I'll see you all next week. Uh, see ya.